1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on ninety three point nine KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Chris Williams is engineering. James Blend
2: producing. Today we'll hear from Alex McFarland, co-author of One Hundred Bible Questions and Answers. In the second hour of today's program, we'll also review a column written by CNN that warns of rapture anxiety. Maybe we really shouldn't talk about the return of Jesus because it's traumatizing people. That's coming up later in the second hour of today's program. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines. There is something of a media meltdown. Reporters and pundits are sounding the alarm as Elon Musk closes the deal to buy Twitter. Be afraid. Be actually afraid, they say. So we're supposed to be to let me just review what we're supposed to be afraid of in case you missed something. Uh, you're supposed to be terrified of Republicans in general, MAGA Republicans in particular, Elon Musk, pro-life Americans, Christians, parents who care about their kids, and the list goes on. While well, anticipating pain at the pump, analysts warn Americans to brace for rising gas prices. In an agency crackdown exclusive, a GOP senator has introduced a bill designed to block the Internal Revenue Service overreach following the recent agency expansion as hundreds and hundreds of new agents will flood the IRS. Losing his grip on power, Putin's military mobilization could prove to be a major blunder. I think most of us would already acknowledge that it is, but it may actually be a costly major blunder. We'll keep following the story. The Treasury Department's new Racial Equity Committee wants to center race in all of its policy. I remember as a youngster when just the opposite was the goal. In a rare appearance, former President George W. Bush is expected to attend an upcoming fundraiser, an event for Colorado Republican Senate candidate uh, Joe O'Day in mid-October. The fundraiser, which will take place in Dallas, comes after O'Day posted big numbers in the recent July-September quarter, reporting $3 million in fundraising. Of the funds, $1 million included a personal loan from O'Day himself. Senator John Cornyn, a Republican out of Texas, is also expected to attend the event. But the big news, the former president, you don't see or hear much from him. He'll be in attendance. Well, the Supreme Court is poised to uphold Alabama's GOP-friendly congressional map. The court's conservative majority appeared ready on Tuesday to uphold Alabama's uh, uh, congressional map in an important voting rights case that could uh, provide uh, major implications in the 2024 race and beyond. In a tense, nearly two hour oral argument, the state argued it was taking a race neutral approach in creating voting boundaries and that it should not be forced to sort voters by race. But the Biden administration and civil rights groups told the justices not to weaken enforcement of a key provision in the landmark Voting Rights Act. The state's redistricting plan is being challenged after the redrawn map continued, having just one of its seven congressional districts where um, racial minorities form a majority of the voters, even though statewide there is a 27 percent black population. Cultural radicalism. One House candidate says Democrats don't know or understand the Hispanic community. And on Kamala Harris, the vice president, after the storm, Pete Buttigieg blames politics for the vice president's claim that Hurricane Ian relief will be based on equity. Of course, she's the one that imposed the political uh, view on the subject. Offering no comment, the president is being slammed for complaining about the media shouting questions that he is expected to answer. Imagine that. Well, police, prosecutors and prisons say urban crime could hobble Democrats in the midterms. And finally falling, Wall Street firms are uh, warning the U.S. housing market is headed for a major slowdown. As mentioned, Elon Musk is moving forward with the Twitter buyout at original price of $54.20 per share. He revived his bid for Twitter, Inc. at the original offer price Uh potentially avoiding a courtroom fight over one of the most contentious acquisitions in recent history. Musk made the proposal in a letter to Twitter, according to people familiar with the matter. Shares in Twitter climbed as much as 18 percent on the news and trading has since been halted. Benny Johnson says Elon Musk reportedly makes a proposal to proceed with the, to, uh, uh, with the deal to buy Twitter at 5420. Trading of uh, Twitter shares halted. Well, Uncle Sam's most ridiculous spending. Well, government watchdog organizations, American Transparency, has compiled a jaw dropping list of just what Uncle Sam has been spending your hard earned dollars on. The report, Where's the Pork? Mapping Waste, Fraud, Corruption and Taxpayer Abuse, was written by the nonprofit CEO and its chair, Thomas Smith. Well, here are a few of the bigger boondoggles that cost roughly two hundred and eighty two billion dollars in twenty twenty one. $6.9 billion, excuse me, million dollars on smart toilets. The National Institutes of Health National Cancer Institute gave Stanford University researchers $6.9 million to build a toilet with three cameras. Okay, what's wrong with this picture? (laughs) I don't want a camera in my toilet. A toilet with three cameras, including one that identifies the user's backside. That's putting it delicately. The toilet monitors flow and uh, other experiment uh, for disease, including cancer. I think I'll just go to the doctor's office. I mm, six point nine million taxpayer dollars, four hundred and seventy eight thousand one hundred and eighty eight, uh, to make transgender monkeys. And do they get consent in uh, anyway, an NIH grant for researchers to inject hormones into male monkeys to make them female, which uh, with a goal of uncovering how female hormone therapy can affect HIV susceptibility and the outcome of immune interventions in transgender women. 478,188, 465,339 to study gambling. The study, a gambling addiction, the NIH tapped Reed College right here in Portland to create a self contained miniature economy for pigeons that were given tokens to accumulate, spend, and gamble. That's going to come in handy. $550,000 horror show using live cats. The U.S. funded nauseating experiments conducted by the Pavlov Institute of Psychology. Or rather, physiology in Russia, in which cats' brain stems were surgically removed and their spinal cords fitted with electrodes. Where's PETA in all of this, one wonders? $2 million in COVID aid to phony farms. To get Paycheck Protection Program loans, hundreds of fake farm businesses applied for and received money to pay their employees during the COVID-19 shutdown. In New Jersey's beach towns, such nonsensical farms as the Ritter Wheat Club and Deely Nuts each got twenty thousand eight hundred and thirty-three thousand dollars ProPublica found. $300,000 to find out if recycling is manly. We'll tell you more about that when we return. Is recycling manly? Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about Uncle Sam's most ridiculous spending. There's sadly more. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Alex McFarland, 100 Bible questions and answers. We're winding through uh, Uncle Sam's most ridiculous spending. I think so far this smart toilet was the worst. That was $6.9 million to seat, if you will, three cameras on the toilet to identify you as the particular user. And I won't repeat how they arrive at that conclusion. Then there's the $300,000 to find out if recycling is manly. The National Science Foundation paid Penn State University researchers to find out whether certain activities are feminine or masculine. They concluded that environmentally friendly behaviors may affect people's perceptions about the person. Really? did Is this something we need to know? Is this useful in any tangible way? You tell people to re- recycle, you require it, and that's... Anyway, $75,000 to blow lizards through the air. Now that I'm I'm glad we're spending money on. The National Science Foundation funded a Harvard University study to examine how well different types of lizards could hang on to trees out of concern they were affected by frequent hurricanes and high-speed winds due to climate change. For the tests, they captured 47 anole Uh, lizards and used leaf blowers to try to blast them out of the trees with winds of up to 108 miles per hour. So let's say you discover that yes, hurricanes do blow lizards out of the trees. What do you do in a hurricane? You drop concern over the people who live in the area and you set about trying to gather all the lizards you can find to put them in a safe place. I I guess I just don't get it. $45,000 for spotting cows from space. Um, Ten under uh, undergrads at UC Santa Barbara lab uh, were funded for eight months to determine if the satellite images they were observing were cows or native true elks. $14 million in Hollywood handouts. COVID-19 was a windfall for entertainers. Rap superstar Kanye West received $2.4 million for his sneaker company, Yeezy LLC which is valued at around $3 billion. Oscar winner Robert Redford's Sundance Institute, which as of August 2021 had nearly $75 million in assets, got just over $3 million in loans. And Francis Ford Coppola LLC and um, Kneebound Coppola Estate Winery LP, two companies owned by Francis Ford Coppola, director of The Godfather, with a net of about $400 million, received a total of 8.5. Million dollars. And finally, $1,490 for elephant droppings. An African elephant can, well, drop up to 16.3 pounds a day, but what is it worth to find that out? A study called Hydrodynamics of Defecation measured the size and shape of said droppings from 43 animal species. It was funded. With $1,490 from 556584 National Science Foundation grant, researchers even made uh, videos of beasts um, as they were producing their droppings uh, so that they could understand the physics of their movements. What they needed was that toilet that has the camera in it, the, excuse me, the three cameras. That's what they needed here. Your tax dollars. At work. Well, in other news, President Biden is working on a governmental model of woke policy for private companies. The administration is working uh, on a national strategy for establishing diversity, equity, and inclusion policies for the government that officials hope can be used as a template for companies and other organizations throughout the country. The Office of Personnel Management last week convened the first meeting of the Chief Diversity Officer's Executive Council, a group that includes diversity officers from several federal agencies. The Council will work to implement and sustain a government-wide plan for encouraging policies that support diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in government hiring and employment. However, the OPM also said it wants to ensure the government is our country's model of excellence when it comes to implementing DEIA policies. Now, equity is a word that sounds like equality, but it means something else in this context. The U.S. will provide six hundred and twenty five million dollars in military assistance to Ukraine. The Associated Press reports the U.S. announced plans on Tuesday to provide an additional six hundred and twenty five million in aid, a package that includes additional advanced rocket systems credited with helping the country's military gain momentum in its war with Russia. President Joe Biden provided details on the latest package, which includes high mobility artillery rocket systems or H.I.M.A.R.S., artillery systems, ammunition and armored vehicles in a call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The U.S. and Ukraine leaders spoke as Russia's upper house of parliament on Tuesday formally approved the annexation of swaths of Ukrainian territory following referendums that Ukraine and its Western allies dismissed as fraudulent. And in fact, Russia is having some difficulty holding on to parts of those now annexed territories. The Hill weighs in. The U.S. has committed now um, committed more than 17.5 billion dollars in aid to Ukraine since the beginning of the Biden administration, including 16.8 billion since Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said Saudi Arabia is planning to raise oil prices to aid. Russia, which will likely prompt U.S. countermeasures. Well, Saudi Arabia is seeking to raise oil prices at a crucial meeting in Vienna in a move set to anger the U.S. and help Russia. Riyadh, Moscow and other producers are set to announce deep cuts at a meeting of the OPEC plus cartel on Wednesday. According to people with knowledge of the discussions, the size of the cut is still to be agreed. But Saudi Arabia and Russia are pushing for reductions of one millimeter and two millimeter barrels a day or um, or more. Although these could be phased in over several months, the move would probably trigger U.S. countermeasures, including the additional release of oil from the country's strategic petroleum reserve, analysts say. Now, as we deplete and drain our strategic petroleum reserve that is supposed to be reserved for national emergencies of particular kinds, It leaves us vulnerable in other ways. Well, the New York Times says experts question just how much OPEC plus will actually cut. Only two of the 23 countries in the group, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, are able to meet their current quotas. Energy experts say whatever OPEC plus announces, it will probably translate into a supply reduction of roughly 500,000 barrels a day or about 0.5 percent of global supply. New Hampshire sent 164 National Guard members to help bolster the southern border. The New York Post reports that New Hampshire is deploying two National Guard units to the southern border. This is weeks after 50 migrants were flown to nearby Martha's Vineyard by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to highlight border issues. Governor Chris Sununu, a Republican like DeSantis, announced that 164 members of the state's National Guard would be deployed to Texas for a year where they'll assist Customs and Border Protection in securing the border. And perhaps that will prevent Martha Stewart, Martha Stewart, Martha's Vineyard from having to deal with um, these migrants they say they have great compassion for. Hot air weighs in. This was a nice move on Sununu's part. There was no requirement for him to send his troops all the way across the country. But Greg Abbott had already put out a call for assistance with what Sununu correctly describes as the humanitarian crisis on our border. Those who have been paying attention will likely note that none of the blue state governors who've been complaining about migrants being sent to their larger cities have stepped forward to help with the problem in this fashion. A report shows armed citizens deter active shooters more often than the FBI admits. A new report from the Crime Prevention Research Center argues that the FBI's data contains massive errors when tracking active shooting incidents, undercounting how often armed citizens have thwarted active shooting situations over the last eight years. Data released by the nonprofit shows that 34.4 percent of active shootings were thwarted by armed citizens between 2014 and 2021. However, FBI data show only 4.4% of active shootings were thwarted by armed citizens during that time period. The Washington Examiner says an analysis by my organization identified a total of 360 active shooter incidents during that period and found that an armed citizen stopped 124. That's a quote from John Lott, president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. Lott found that when he adjusted the correct and corrected the numbers, the percentage of shootings stopped by a legal gun owner, jumped from a single digit to 34 to 49 percent. He also argued that gun-free zones were a hindrance, a good data and defenses that, if eliminated, would boost the percentage of shootings stopped. The U.S. and South Korea, they've launched a missile test in response to North Korea's drill. South Korea and the U.S. military fired a volley of missiles into the sea in response to North Korea's launch of a ballistic missile over Japan, Seoul said on Wednesday as Pyongyang's uh, longest-range test yet drew international condemnation. The drill saw four South Korean F-15s and four U.S. F-16 fighter jets fire two shots at a set of targets, which the South Korean military said had demonstrated the will by both countries to respond resolutely to any provocation from the North. The ability to precisely strike the origin of the provocation with the overwhelming power of the alliance, and a readiness posture for retaliation. Well, there's more to come. We'll cover more news stories. And in the second hour, a conversation with Alex McFarland, co author of 100 Bible Questions and Answers. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show back momentarily.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, more than 355,000 Russians have fled after the, the president, President Putin, announced Russia's mobilization. Well, since Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a national mobilization last month, more than 355,000 have left the country, according to Russian independent media. Russian Defense Minister Sergey. Shogu, or something very like that, said Tuesday that more than 200,000 people have been mobilized since September 21. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, whose forces began an offensive in August, has vowed to take back all Russian-occupied territory. But Putin in September announced a mobilization of reservists, which is expected to call up as many as 300,000 additional troops. The gender transition surgery industry can balloon up to $5 billion by 2030. The U.S. sex reassignment surgery market size was valued at U.S. dollars $1.9 billion in 2021 and is expected to expand at a compound annual growth rate of 11.23% from 2022 to 2030. The rising um, incidences of gender dysphoria and the increasing number of people opting for gender confirmation surgery are expected to boost the growth during the forecast period. Now, interestingly, you're not allowed to speak against it, suggest it might not be a good idea, that there's another approach. Uh, That's no longer permitted, broadly. So there's no uh, there's no deterrence. The industry surrounding uh, transgender surgeries is expected to reach five billion dollars by the end of the decade, while insurance companies such as Aetna and Unicare may cover some components of sex reassignment surgeries, including hysterectomies and ovarectomies. Grandview Research said that government support is also driving the market through Medicare coverage. The new HBO Max Scooby-Doo movie depicts Velma as a lesbian. Of course, because a sexually ambitious teenager in children's entertainment is so, I don't know, last week. Well, the children's show will appear on Cartoon Network. NBC says the creators of the new Scooby-Doo movie have finally depicted Velma as a lesbian on screen after years of speculation about the beloved character's sexuality. Now, who was speculating about her sexuality? Oh, I'm guessing nobody. Unless they lived... In Hollywood, but no definitive portrayals of her as queer in the popular cartoon franchise. Velma crushes on another female character, a costume designer named Coco Diablo in the Halloween special um, that was released online Tuesday and will debut on the Cartoon Network later this month. The company isn't the only one to increase uh, visibility in children's entertainment of late. Earlier this year, Disney's um, Reimagine Tomorrow announced a push for 50 percent of regular recurring characters across the Disney universe will come from underrepresented groups. The national debt has topped thirty one trillion dollars for the first time in our nation's history. The national debt was officially uh, surpassed the thirty one trillion. Much of the recent debt came from the government's response to the covid pandemic as Wild new spending in Washington increased the rate of debt accumulation. By the end of 2020, federal government spending added $3.1 trillion to the debt, and an additional $2.8 trillion was added in 2021. By the end of this year, government spending is projected to add an additional $1 trillion to the national debt, much of it thanks to uh, uh, the president's enormously named, uh, erroneously named, Inflation Reduction Act. Some economists see $1 trillion as the new baseline average the government will add annually. Of the new record, Republican Representative Chip Roy of Texas observed that the national debt was $21 trillion just five years ago. It was $11 trillion in 2009. Fellow Republican James Baird, he noted, this is what happens when congressional Democrats engage in unchecked partisan spending and hardworking Americans are paying the price. Meanwhile, Biden insists that he's being fiscally responsible, regularly touting that he reduced the deficit, $350 billion, this year. His responsibility is the result of convenient timing and failure to pass his full agenda. Crooked IRS staffers took thousands of fraudulent COVID relief, as did other Americans. The Justice Department has charged five current and former IRS employees with wire fraud related to their theft of thousands of dollars in COVID relief funds. According to U.S. Attorney Kevin Ritz, these individuals, acting out of pure greed, abused their positions by taking government funds meant for citizens and businesses who desperately needed it. He added, our office will not hesitate to pursue and charge individuals who steal from our nation's Taxpayers, the IRS employees are charged with defrauding the Paycheck Protection Program and the Economic Injury Disaster Loan, two programs Congress set up to provide relief funds for small business owners impacted by the pandemic. The individuals charged sold funds in the range of $11,000 to more than $170,000. We're sure the 87,000 new IRS employees will do better. We're sure, right? Right? Okay. San Francisco celebrated 73 years of Chinese communism. Way to go, San Francisco. The Chinese communist flag was flown over San Francisco City Hall last week in a gesture commemorating the October 1st, 1949 victory of Mao Zedong's communist forces, formally proclaiming their control over China. The genocide that Mao's communists would mete out on the Chinese people is unparalleled in world history. Let's put up a flag Of course, that history is entirely ignored as one of America's most leftist cities is perfectly fine with Beijing's anti-liberty agenda. And this practice is nothing new. Back in 2014, San Francisco's then-mayor explained why City Hall flew the communist China flag. San Francisco, as well as California, has very strong ties to China, and those ties have seemingly only grown despite continued examples of China's inhumane treatment of minority groups like the Uyghurs, which last year the U.S. State Department declared a genocide. This is a contemporary genocide. Just last month, Governor Gavin Newsom signed legislation making the Chinese Lunar New Year a state holiday. In doing so, he proclaimed recognizing this day as a state holiday acknowledges the diversity and cultural significance Asian Americans bring to California and provides an opportunity for all Californians to participate in the significance of the Lunar New Year. Beijing praised Newsom's actions, yet last year Newsom renamed Columbus Day Indigenous People's Day because of woke activists blaming the Italian explorer, explorer rather, for unleashing uh, colonialism and death onto the Native Americans. So Native Americans don't really care so much about that. On the other hand, I should say we care about that. On the other hand, Uyghurs, not so much. OPEC is weighing OPEC plus is weighing a large oil cutback. Florida faces a grim reality. Hurricane Ian will prove to be the deadliest storm in the state since 1935. John Fetterman cast the lone vote in the failed bid to free a man convicted of first degree murder of a high schooler. Planned Parenthood pimps puberty blockers in a cartoon cartoon aimed at kids and transgender surgery is poised to become a $5 billion industry. A lawsuit challenging Florida's parental rights and education law has been tossed by a federal judge and DHS released unvaccinated Afghans while threatening to fire unvaccinated Border Patrol agents. Massachusetts colleges plans to to enforce a mask mandate indefinitely. And Vladimir Putin formally signed the annexation of four Ukrainian regions as Losses mount. Well, on this day in history, 1921, the World Series is carried on radio for the first time. In Newark, New Jersey, station WJZ relays a telephoned play-by-play account of the first game from the polo grounds. Although the New York Yankees win the opener 3-0 to zero, and New York Giants would win the series 5 games to 3. 1947, President Harry S. Truman delivers the first televised White House address as he speaks on the world food crisis. 1953, Earl Warren is sworn in as the 14th Chief Justice of the United States, succeeding Fred Vinson. 1958, racially desegregated Clinton High School in Clinton, Tennessee, is mostly leveled by an early morning bombing. 1983, Solidarity founder Lech Walesa is named winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. 1984, the space shuttle Challenger blasts off from the Kennedy Space Center on an eight-day mission. The crew includes Catherine Sullivan, who becomes the first American woman to walk in space, and Mark Grano, the first Canadian astronaut. 1988, Democrat Lloyd Benston, he lambasted Republican Dan Quayle during their vice presidential debate, saying, Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was my friend. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. 1989, a jury in Charlotte, North Carolina, convicts former PTL evangelist Jim Baker of using his television show to defraud followers. 2001, tabloid photo editor Robert Stevens dies from inhaled anthrax, the first of a series of anthrax cases in Florida, New York, New Jersey, and Washington. 2005, defying the White House, Senators vote 90 to 9 to approve an amendment sponsored by Senator John McCain that would prohibit the use of cruel, inhumane or degrading treatment or punishment against anyone in U.S. government custody. 2011, Apple founder rather, Steve Jobs, 56, dies in Palo Alto, California. 2017, a Hollywood executive, Harvey Weinstein, announces that he's taking a leave of absence from his company after a New York Times article details decades of sexual harassment against women 2018 Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine and Democrat Joe Manchin of West Virginia. They announced that they would vote to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, all but assuring that Kavanaugh would be confirmed. And finally, in 2018, the government reports that the unemployment rate fell in September to three point seven percent, the lowest since 1969, reflecting a healthy economy driven by strong consumer and business spending. Hey you're listening to the Georgine Rice show quick break and yeah we'll be back
1: you're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ
2: hey we're back you're listening to the Georgine Rice show I want to remind you tomorrow is bring your bible to school day um tomorrow october 6th is uh, is bring your bible to school day it's a nationwide student led movement to encourage others with hope that we have in Christ and to celebrate our religious freedoms. The event empowers Christian students of all ages to speak God's grace and truth into the culture around them. Your child can post about it and win a live, or actually live, your faith package. Post a photo and you could be one of five lucky winners. Go to kpdq.com and look for the Focus on the Family page for all the important details. That's coming up tomorrow. Bring your Bible to school day in well, what is shaping up to be an uh, action-packed term at the U.S. Supreme Court? The justice is upped the ante on Tuesday by granting review of another banner case, Gonzalez versus Google. Well, the case centers on interpretation of a law that's plagued social media users, especially conservatives, for some time by allowing tech giants to ban, promote alter or recommend content based on the user's point of view. Well, the law is the Communications Decency Act of 1996, Section 230C1 of the Act, which bears the long title Protection for Good Samaritan Blocking and Screening of Offensive Material. It shields publishers. Uh, like big tech platforms from civil liability for hosting offensive content created by others. It says no provider or users of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider, End quote. Well, the section of the Communications Decency Act also provides good Samaritan protections from civil liability for operators of interactive computer services that engage in the good faith removal of moderation of third party um, Material they deem obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected, end quote. Well, courts generally apply a three-pronged test when they're deciding whether Section 230 shields a provider from a claim of liability. Now, courts will look to see if, uh, one, the defendant is a provider or user of an interactive computer service, two, the cause of action is based on information provided by another information content provider, and three, the claim treats the defendant as being the publisher or speaker of the harmful information at issue. If all three parts are satisfied, then the defendant is immune from liability. In short, under section 230, uh, 230 rather, online platform providers that host or um, republish speech are protected against a range of laws that might otherwise be used to hold them legally responsible for what others say on their platform. Well, the provision leaves it to the companies to decide whether certain content should be removed and doesn't require them to be politically neutral. So good faith removal or moderation of third-party materials has an increasing uh, measure protected the notoriously left-wing big tech cabal, allowing it to adjust content as it wishes. Curiously, the content adjustment only seems to work against content from one perspective. Well, the censorship of conservative voices by big tech uh, is well documented. Some on Capitol Hill have gone so far as to claim that big tech practically owns the government, a claim that seems increasingly well-founded considering the government's documented efforts to control messaging during both the pandemic and on politically inconvenient stories. But until Gonzales, no vehicle presented the appropriate opportunity to consider the question on Section 230's application, which is not to say this big tech first uh, run at the Supreme Court. Well, as recently as 2020, the court turned away the petitioners uh, who also came to the court asking for clarification on the parameters of Section 230 in the case called malware uh, Malwarebytes, Inc. versus Enigma Software Group USA, LLC. In a statement accompanying the denial of the petition for uh, uh, for review, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote that in appropriate in an appropriate case, we should consider whether the text of this Uh, Increasingly important statute, the Communications Decency Act, aligns with the current state of immunity enjoyed by Internet platforms. Well, he went on to say, and in the 24 years since its adoption, we have never interpreted this uh, this provision. But many courts have construed the law broadly to confer sweeping immunity on some of the largest companies in the world. Well, all of that to say, the Supreme Court has now decided they're going to take it up. Uh, the, the question of whether or not this applies in cases where it's being applied by big tech companies. Their moment has finally arrived at the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, speaking of the Supreme Court, when the, uh, when SCOTUS overturned Roe v.ersus Wade in its Dobbs v.ersus Jackson Women's Health Organization decision this summer, abortion didn't become illegal in the United States. The court simply ruled, rightly from my perspective, that there is no right to an abortion in the U.S. Constitution. That returned the question of abortion to the states. Now, some states said pre-existing pro-life laws that soon sprung to life. Other states responded with new protections for unborn human beings. And some states' highest courts have claimed a right to abortion was secretly lurking in their state constitutions all along. Well, Finally, some states are pushing to create such a right in their state laws. Perhaps the most egregious is Proposition 3, the Right to Reproductive Freedom State Constitutional Amendment, which is set up for a vote next month in Michigan. Prop 3 would enshrine abortion as an absolute right in state law there. That's bad enough, but since it's written so vaguely, probably by design— it would be, it would do a lot more than that. If voters approve this amendment, they could unwittingly be rejecting not only the right to the unborn to live, but the rights of parents to protect and direct the upbringing of their minor children. Well, the first concern, the rights of parents, comes from Proposition 3's use of the term individual. It means that anyone, including a minor, could have a right to abortion, birth control, or other reproductive surgeries like the removal of healthy breasts, all without the knowledge or consent of a parent. Well, what happens if a young girl is the victim of abuse? Under this law, the abuser um, or scared boyfriend, also an individual, could badger her into having an abortion. The parents would thus lose the chance to intervene or prosecute. Beyond abortion, the amendment would provide access to birth control and cross-sex hormones. Parents across the U.S. are fighting teachers and administrators who socially transition their sons or daughters uh, and do so secretly without their knowledge or consent. And in some states, schools are the uh, essentially the mouth of the pipeline that uh, leads to gender clinics and cross-sex hormones, again, administered without parents' consent. Well, parents are best equipped to protect and care for their children's well-being. Uh, they have both the right and the responsibility to do so, and Proposition 3 would take that right away and leave it up to the minors uh, or the influence of other adult gender Ideologues, or for that matter, other minors who just make the decision will follow Michigan's Prop Three, uh, this radical amendment that goes beyond Roe versus Wade, fails to protect minors or the rights of parents to be involved in the well-being and medical care of their children. This is the slippery slope we are currently on. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic here at the top of the hour. In the second hour, we'll hear from Alex McFarland, co-author of 100 Bible Questions and Answers. And we'll take a look at uh, a piece on CNN, warning of rapture anxiety. And we're not talking about people who are moved emotionally. We're talking about the return of Christ. That's coming up
1: next you're listening to the Georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: well welcome back you're listening to the second hour of the Georgine rice show coming up in our next couple of segments alex mcfarland co-author of 100 bible questions and answers we'll also take a look at a cnn article suggesting that um, thoughts of and conversations about the rapture are creating a trauma that should be taken seriously. We'll get into that later in the program. want to give you an invitation. Pathways Clinic's Fall Banquet Gala is coming up this Tuesday, October 11th. And we'd like to invite you to join me at the uh, Pathways uh, to Hope Fall Banquet Gala to benefit Pathways Clinic Tuesday night with special guest speaker, Governor Mike Huckabee for 28 years pathway has provided loving care and support to help people make life affirming decisions. You can enjoy an evening of fun fellowship fundraising to support this worthy ministry and great food as well. You can get all the important details and reserve your spot at kpdq.com. That's pathways clinics fall banquet gala this Tuesday, October 11th. Well, Republicans on the House Foreign Affairs Committee sent a letter to Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry, over reports his office is effectively outsourcing American foreign policy making to left-wing environmental groups. Well, House Foreign Affairs Committee ranking member Michael McCall, out of Texas, led the letter with the GOP members of his committee following uh, that the green groups were consulted and given a key role in crafting U.S. foreign policy. Now, the reports based on internal State Department emails showed outside non-governmental organizations acting as an apparent middleman in key global climate policy talks. We need to know the extent to which the special envoy, John Kerry, is farming his work out to progressive environmentalists, which could be a violation of federal law, McCall wrote in the letter. And in a statement on Friday as well in the letter, the lawmakers pointed to the report suggesting that your office is effectively outsourcing official policymaking functions of the U.S. government to progressive environmentalist groups and or utilizing them in an unlawful advisory capacity. As has been publicly reported, groups have demanded that the State Department elevate climate change above all national security, great power competition and human rights considerations to the top of all foreign policy decisions. The Republicans wrote, they have also advised the department that anyone with a history of blocking climate action must be disqualified from senior international appointments, McCall and his fellow GOP members continued. Well, in August, Fox News Digital reported that Kerry's office had consulted with multiple left-wing environmentalist groups on multiple occasions since the president took office in January of 21. Immediately upon taking office, Biden appointed Kerry to be the nation's first special presidential envoy for climate. It's a high-level State Department position that grants him a position on the White House National Security Council. Well, emails obtained via government watchdog group Protect the Public's Trust showed that staffers and advisors in Kerry's office actively sought the advice of prominent groups like the Sierra Club and the United Nations Foundation. His office also scheduled Zoom briefings with such organizations. For an administration claiming to be guided by the science, there are more than a few indications that the input of their political allies may be a bigger driver of policy. The director Michael Chamberlain of PPT said at the time, little wonder that the American public's trust in its government is in free fall, end quote. Well, Fox News Digital then reported in September that additional emails obtained by PPT showed environmental groups acting as an apparent go between for the Biden administration and international climate discussions. The story was cited in the House Foreign Affairs uh, GOP letter on Thursday. The department's state leadership in combating the global climate crisis is supported by diplomats, negotiators, and subject matters uh, ex uh, subject matter experts with device. Um, rather diverse backgrounds and decades of knowledge and experience from the public sector, academia, NGOs and the private sector, a State Department spokesperson said after the second report. Kerry's office didn't respond to the request for comment, but in a letter, McCall and the other GOP lawmakers continued requesting additional clarity regarding your office's interaction with these groups, your team's solicitation of their advice and the department's adoption of their recommendations." They also wrote the emails uh, reported suggest um, that your office has sent private update regarding your foreign travel to small, exclusive cadre of representatives of various nonprofit organizations who remain better informed than the American people or the U.S. Congress regarding your whereabouts and policy agenda. We'll certainly follow the story. And if there is a, a constructive response, we'll try to share that as well. the elections bring on an array of issues that directly impact the lives of millions, which is part of the reason why arguments surrounding political issues can become so heated and divisive. Furthermore, it's one of the reasons why people get frustrated when politics enters spheres it formerly had not occupied. One of those important spheres where the politics shouldn't have entered is the judiciary system and more specifically the U.S. Supreme Court. Its uh, term began on Monday. Unfortunately, over the years, the highest court in the land has been increasingly viewed as politicized, a court divided between conservative and liberal justices. However, despite the fact that this um, conservative versus liberal divide in SCOTUS uh, did exist, it didn't affect the justices' own internal collegiality. And while the justices recognized their colleagues' differing views, they all famously got along quite amicably there was a sense of gravitas around the role they all had uh, as a collective unit played within the greater us government and they sought to guard that uh, that role from the negative influences of the constant public political bickering that marks congress well sadly that appears um it appears that that collegiality has begun to fray liberal justice elena kagan has started attacking the court effectively asserting that it has become politicized and therefore illegitimate it's apparent that uh, Kagan has been raising this charge not because there's a actual evidence supporting it, but because several of the court's recent decisions, such as Dobbs, didn't go her way. Well, last week, Kagan wrote, um, or rather spoke at Salve Regina University in Rhode Island, where she once again insinuated that her colleagues were simply doing the bidding of the Republicans. She then correctly observed the thing that builds up uh, reservoirs of public confidence uh, is the courts acting like a court and not acting like an extension of the political process, end quote. And yet earlier this summer at a judicial conference, Kagan suggested the opposite view. If over time, she said the court loses all connection with the public and with public sentiment, that is a dangerous thing for democracy, end quote. Where have we heard that political talking point of danger to democracy before? Well, that's in political circles. Well, Chief Justice John Roberts has pushed back on Kagan's illegitimacy, Conard, by stating simply because people disagree with an opinion is not a basis for questioning the legitimacy of the court, as the jurist has uh, done. He further argued that the court doesn't change simply because people disagree with this opinion or that opinion or disagree with a particular mode of the jurisprudence. Justice uh, Samuel Alito also jumped in to rebut Kagan's smear. It goes without saying that everyone is free to express disagreement with our decisions and to criticize our reasoning as they see fit, he said. But saying or implying that the court is becoming an illegitimate institution or questioning our integrity crosses an important line. What is critical to know, as it um, would go a long way toward reestablishing in the minds of many Americans, that the court As an institution won't be intimidated by politically motivated harassment would be the naming of the individual who broke the protocol and leaked the draft opinion on Dobbs. If justice is to be served, that individual needs to be exposed and held accountable. Ignoring it will only serve to create a precedent, pave the way for future leaks and further erosion of America's confidence in the Supreme Court. That does, in fact, hold a legitimate role. Well, I'm not going to have time for that story, so I'm just, going to, I'm just going to miss it. Well, a Cornell professor is targeted for criticizing Black Lives Matter. Professor William Jacobson has taught at Cornell University, the law school, for over a dozen years. But this hasn't inoculated him from the uh, cancel culture mob. An Ivy League biology professor has sounded the alarm on how critical race theory curricula is erasing the meaning and even existence of objective truth from classrooms and teaching a generation of students to treat the truth fast and loose. We're supposed to be training people like biologists that will become doctors to make us healthier. Mechanical engineers that will build bridges or skyscrapers. skyscrapers. Associate professor at Cornell University School of Integrative Plant Science, Randy Wayne, said in an interview. And if uh, they are trained on a foundation that there is no truth, nobody wants to be operated on by such a surgeon or drive over a bridge made by such an engineer. And I'm afraid that's just where the universities are going. Well, there's more to be said, but no time to share it. So we'll return to that on another occasion coming up a conversation with Alex McFarlane he's the co-author of 100 Bible questions and answered we'll also take a look at a CNN article suggesting that you know when trauma is the result maybe we need to avoid the thing that causes it in this case it's talk of the return of Jesus that and more when we return you're listening to the Georgine Rice show
1: you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KpdQ
2: I think those of us who are Jesus followers would agree. It's important for Christians to have biblical knowledge, to strengthen our own faith, to have a better understanding of the Bible, and to be equipped to share our faith with others. Well, in the new book, 100 Bible Questions and Answers, Inspiring Truths, Historical Facts, Practical Insights, my next guest... Uh, Alex McFarland and his co-author draw on their extensive knowledge as pastors, scholars and Bible researchers to answer on topics on everything from creation to end times, highlighting scripture, a Bible history and historical facts on topics that include Old Testament challenges, questions about the Holy Spirit, questions about salvation and much, much more. Well, for over 10 years, um, these two writers have hosted a nationally syndicated broadcast exploring the word and hope to offer guidance to some tough questions through scripture reference. They also encourage readers to prioritize time to seek answers independently and increase their knowledge in their faith. Well, Alex McFarland is a speaker. He's an author and advocate for Christian apologetics. He's the founder and president of the national apologetic conference truth for a new generation and is the only evangelist to have preached in all 50 states in only 50 days. Well, for um. More than a decade, he's been co-host of Exploring the Word. It's a nationally syndicated live Bible teaching program heard daily on the American Family Radio Network. He's the author of 18 books on apologetics and Christian faith and joins us today to talk about the latest he co-authored with his co-host, um, uh, Bert Harper, 100 Bible Questions and Answers. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Well, thank you so much. It's a a great honor to be back, and thank you for that kind introduction.
2: Well, you are certainly welcome, and you've uh, certainly earned it as well. Now, this is quite a a bold undertaking to take on some of the the tougher questions that often come up in the course of conversation about the Scriptures, and to write a whole book on the subject. Uh, Talk a little bit about the idea of creating the book and the fact that it's designed Uh, For those who might have questions and want to pass the book along to others who may also have questions.
3: Well, thanks very much. Yes, uh, we published it with a very wonderful Christian publisher out of Minnesota called Broad Street Publishing. And since 2009, we've done this program on the American Family Radio Network. It's called Exploring the Word. And, you know, it's an hour-long live show, and we teach through the Bible. But then in the second half hour, we open up the phones and we take Bible questions. And it's um, unscripted, I mean, completely, you know, we we don't know what the person's question is going to be until we put them live on the air. And so by about the second or third year, people were saying, you know, it really would be great to have a book, like a reference book. And so what we did, um, I mean, It it, Well, it started out it was going to be 200 Bible questions, (laughs) but we realized the book would probably be too large, so we trimmed it down just numerically to the, as best we could calculate the top 100 Bible questions from the first 10 years of exploring the Word. You know, uh, how do we know the Bible is the Word of God? What about the Apocrypha? You know, um, what about Bible, alleged Bible contradictions? and Questions and not only questions about the Bible and the content, but just Christian living and making sense of the world. And, um, there are questions about gender and sexuality and moral issues and the end times. And, uh, we tried to keep each answer pretty, pretty brief, pretty, um, practical. And I, I really do, I praise God for this, Georgine, that. I think it's going to help a lot of Christians that it would be a good thing to pass on to those that are searching or struggling. And um, by Alex McFarland, Bert Harper, 100 Bible Questions and Answers. And it's uh, of of this kind of book, it's got a lot of fresh research, and it just came out literally like a week ago, so Mm -hmm. it's brand new.
2: I should mention that you also have... um a final ultimate question at the end. So if you're passing the book along to someone uh, who is a seeker uh, and not yet a believer or follower in Jesus, there's the opportunity to read that portion or to share that with someone who is uh, genuinely interested.
3: Yeah. You know, we, uh, we, after answering all these questions, we had a question ourselves at the end for the reader, which is, you know, we have a question for you. And here's the question. Uh, if you were to die, uh, how do you know that you would go to heaven? If God said to you, why should I let you in heaven, what would you say? And so we, we share the gospel, what it means to know Christ, uh, how to have assurance of where you stand with the Lord. And and that's one of the beautiful things, I mean, that um, in Christ we can have assurance. We, we literally can overcome doubts about where we stand with god and and based on what the bible god's word says not not emotions or feelings but based on what the bible says we can know k-n-o-w first john 515 we can know that we have eternal life through jesus and georgine that's what we want we want people to have confidence and assurance that they have the lord in their life
2: amen let me ask the, the one of the other ultimate questions for those who are skeptical about the Scriptures. How do you respond to those who think the Bible is outdated or irrelevant? They acknowledge, okay, it's a, it's a good book. It was useful in its time. How do you respond to those who have rejected it outright, believing that uh, we 21st century um, Westerners no longer need this antiquated resource?
3: Well, you know, one of the things that uh, people have written about for really the last century is the hubris of the modern world. Hubris, kind of being arrogance, because see, truth—the the the real definition of truth is that which corresponds to reality, and so reality doesn't change. Rea- now, i as we've invented a few things, we've got some gadgets that they didn't have you know, even a few decades ago. But here's the thing. Uh, Human nature, uh, human gender, um, morality, moral boundaries, right and wrong, and, yes, Almighty God and how our sins are forgiven, these things never change. The ultimate truths of life are the same as they were in the days of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the Apostle Paul— augustine aquinas you know up through the ages and so people that say you know the bible is outdated well how how could an eternal god who is the 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 ground of reality ever become out of date um it's arrogance if not ignorance to say otherwise
2: you um have a, um, have hosted a radio program for over a decade. Are there certain questions that tend to come up on a regular basis? It, it, can you generalize what some of our most basic and profound questions are?
3: Uh, well, God bless you. Probably the most common question is some variant of what we call the problem of pain and suffering. Mm. Uh, if God is loving and if God is powerful, then, you know, why is there evil in the world? You know, how could a loving God allow anything from terrorism to violence to, you know, children who have cancer or something like that? And, you know, that's kind of an emotional question. So, obviously, we try to handle that in a very, you know, pastoral way because, um, you know, actually only the Christian worldview has a, a response to the problem of pain and suffering. because. For instance, if you're an atheist or a secularist and you believe in evolution, well, you know, Darwin said that uh, the less fit species dies and gives way to the more fit species. So, uh, And if there is no God, there's no ultimate standard of, of righteousness. So the secularist says, you know, life is painful. There's evil in the world. Well, yeah, that's just how it is in a, a purposeless, undirected world. Richard Dawkins said that said it is a world of no pity and no purpose, and that's not very satisfying. But then Eastern religion says, well, you know, there's the yin and the yang, and everything's entwined in this cosmic dance of good and evil. And so we say, okay, when there's sadness and there's tragedy, that's just how things are. But Christianity alone, Christianity does not deny the reality of evil. says, yeah, there's sin. We're in a fallen world. And and that's painful. However, God has done something about it. God has gone to the cross, paid for our sins. We can be forgiven and born anew. And there's a new heaven and earth coming. And so, while yeah, this world can be challenging and painful, um, really only Christianity with a risen Savior and an empty tomb has has an answer. We're talking, but that's probably the most frequently asked question. Some variation of why is there pain and suffering in the world?
2: Yeah, yeah. We're talking with Alex McFarland. He, along with his co-author Bert Harper, authored one hundred Bible questions and answers. It's a, an excellent resource. I think we encourage our own hearts when we um, are reassured the Scriptures address these subjects and how. Uh, we can think about um, some of the more controversial things. We're prepared to address questions that others might have. A great resource to have in your library and certainly the church library as well. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: I'm continuing my conversation with Alex McFarland. He has been described as an expert on religion and culture by Fox News and CNN, and he's led conferences on apologetics and defense of the biblical worldview throughout all of the United States and internationally. He and his wife make their home in North Carolina. (coughs) Excuse me. And his co-author, Bert Harper, served as a local uh, church pastor for 38 years. Now, describe for our listeners some of the sections that are in your book.
3: Oh, thanks very much. And again, Georgie, thanks for having me on. I just have such a great respect for what you do, and you're uh, a veteran broadcaster and uh, presenter of truth, and I really appreciate the chance to be on with you. I appreciate uh, yeah. your
2: encouragement. Thank you.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there are a lot of Bible uh, challenges. You know, the Bible is the Word of God. I, I firmly believe that, and uh, I believe that the Bible is a supernatural book, but um, while there are no verified contradictions, there are challenging passages, and we, we talk about what some of those passages are, you know, in Old and New Testaments, and then there there's a section on questions about God, you know, how do we really know what God is like, and uh, it's funny you were asking about common questions. Interestingly, we have a fair amount of, like, younger listeners to our radio show, like middle schoolers and even elementary mm. schoolers. And kids, you know, pre adolescent are very, very, very concrete thinkers. And one of the questions we get a lot from children is, is this, if God made everything, who made God? Mm. And so we, we address that in the book, and we talk about mm. worldview. And um, we are in a battle of worldviews for our culture now. And We talk about questions about Jesus, questions about salvation, moral questions, questions about gender and sexuality and Christian living, and uh, how do I find a good church, and um, what should the churches be on things like uh, abortion or even things like cremation. And then there's a section on what we call eschatology, which is prophecy and end times, things like that. So um, 100, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, the book is a little over 200 pages, and the publisher kind of was like, look, um, this is getting lengthy. We might have to do a volume two, but right now we've got to kind of wrap it up. So uh, believe it or not, it was kind of a challenge to adequately answer 100 questions and keep it at about 200 pages. So it's about 220 pages, but it's scholarly enough uh, Georgine, I think it's it's scholarly enough to get the job done, but it's accessible enough that it's not going to, you know, kind of give people a deer in the headlights look. We we think it's gonna be something that a lot of ages will resonate with.
2: Yeah, I would agree. One of the most valuable segments, and they're all excellent, is this section on questions about sexuality and gender. I think the church is in in some quarters really stuck on the subject because the, the movements that oppose the Christian worldview on the subject uh, paint Christians as hateful uh, because they may not agree on some of the, the major um, uh, tenets of that movement. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, why Christianity says homosexuality is sin, as one example?
3: Um, yeah, sure. And hey, let me let me just throw this out there to show you what kind of a battle of worldviews we're in, uh, Georgine. Um, we didn't write this book for money. Uh, in fact, um, any profit or royalties goes into the ministry. Um, BERT uh, and the American Family Association, that's a great ministry. I've got a ministry called Truth for a New Generation, and we we tour all over the country reaching kids with biblical worldview. So we didn't do this for money and any royalties, what there are, go back into reaching people of Christ. Now, that means that there is a Christian retailer, the third largest Christian, I mean, 30% of all Christian books sold in this nation are sold by this particular Christian retailing company. They called this, they said, Look, if you'll remove any question about homosexuality or transgenderism, replace it with anything, just don't touch homosexuality or transgenderism, we'll buy 10,000 copies. Hmm. That essentially would have been 5,000 for. Myself five thousand for Bert Harper, and so they came to us. They said, "Look, we we will buy ten thousand copies. You just cannot touch the subject of homosexuality or transgenderism." And we said, "Well, but the Bible touches the subject of homosexuality," and so we ultimately we said, "No, you know, I'm sorry, we can't change it." Now we we love people. We try to be very gentle and pastoral, but the Bible talks about certain things that God says are sin it 's not because God is a bad guy, not because God is a bully, but God wants us to be saved and the fact Georgine and we talk about it and and I know because when I was in graduate school at Liberty University uh, during my master 's degree, I minored at the graduate level in developmental psychology. And we had a professor from UCLA Medical School. Of course, I've, I've, you know, read endless amounts of sociologists, psychologists, medical, mental health professionals, and I've written literally hundreds of articles, both pop-level and uh, academic level. And, see, here's the reality. Same-sex attraction and gender confusion both of these are means of dealing with Pain, pain or abuse um, Emotional Abuse, verbal abuse, sexual Abuse, sexual assault So the culture is pressuring The church right now To mainstream Homosexual behavior But in reality Homosexuality Is is not God's design It's not what The human body was made for But it's it's birthed out of abuse, and if I'm going to do what my Lord says and love my neighbor, why would I encourage abuse? Why would I encourage something that will uh, further destroy the, the body, the mind, and the soul? And so while I think the way we handle questions about homosexuality is true to the Word of God, And very pastoral and empathetic At the same time, Georgina I've I've got to say that the the church Must not cave On what God says About sexual truth And just just like The, the, you know 30% of all Christian books Are sold by this one particular retailer That, you know Dangled a, a sale Hey, please, you know throw in the towel and cave and we'll buy 10,000 books. we said, look, we're not going to do that. If I never sell another book in my life, I'm not going to betray what the word of God says.
2: And that's the challenge for all of us. Um, In order to be popular, in order to uh, avoid the attention that sometimes comes from speaking what the scriptures have to say in love and in, in the right way, but staying true to what the Scriptures teach can be a challenge for us and rather than shrink back, we need to make sure we know what the Scriptures say and ask that the the, the Holy Spirit will give us the wisdom and how to discuss issues that may be painful. Uh, to others our time is is up but i just highly recommend to our listeners today 100 bible questions and answers it's very approachable you'll find it very useful and i think help us all to articulate and think through what the bible teaches on some of the challenging issues of our day and i so appreciate you and your co-author for taking the time to pen the book to help all of us do better to represent christ and extend his love out into our respective communities thank you so much
3: God bless you, Georgine. Thank you.
2: God bless you as well. By the way, the book is published by um, Broad Street Publishing and currently available. It's about a week old.
3: You're
1: listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I read an interesting article on the Christian Post. Uh, It has to do with CNN that's warning against rapture anxiety, and it claims that ex-Christians are struggling with trauma over end times teaching. Now, where are they going with this? Well, you need to get rid of end times teaching because it's traumatizing people. Now, interestingly enough, environmentalism and the catastrophe that's just looming around the corner, that's okay. But the certainty of Christ's return, I say from a Christian perspective, you really shouldn't talk about it. Well, here's what the article said. Could teaching what's described in the Bible as a blessed hope actually be a source of anxiety and trauma? Well, an article published by CNN, this was on Tuesday, with a headline, For Some Christians, Rapture Anxiety Can Take a Lifetime to Heal, depicts the eschatological doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ for his church as a chronic problem. Now, this is really fascinating to me. The article also describes the teaching as recognized by some faith experts and mental health professionals as a type of religious trauma. Featuring a, a stock photo with the caption, some Christians develop fears related to the teachings of the rapture. And that's that's one word you can use. The return of Christ might be another. Uh, the article profiles two women who have battled so-called rapture anxiety, including April, a joy who recalled waking up to a quiet home as a 13-year-old and fearing that she had missed the prophetic end times event. Now, she's now a grown woman. She reflects back at being a 13-year-old, but apparently she has been traumatized into adulthood. The article reads, in part, a mind began churning, trying to remember, trying to make plans. When was the last time she had sinned? Should she um, have refused the uh, mark of the beast? At least, she thought, if she... Um, was put in the guillotine during the time of tribulation, it would be a quick death, end quote. While describing the event as when righteous Christians ascend into heaven while the rest are left behind, CNN adds, uh, however it happens, it's something to be both feared and welcomed to be prayed about and prepared for every moment of a believer's life. Another woman, Georgia resident Chelsea Wilson, told the cable news outlet that she grew up in the evangelical community and believed that the end times teaching Um, was akin to a scary campfire story. So it appears she didn't take it all that seriously in her youth. But now as an adult speaking to CNN, she refers to it as traumatic. The article, which was not categorized as an opinion or was not categorized as an opinion piece on CNN's website, also appears to take aim at evangelical churches by describing the rapture as a fringe teaching of dispensational premillennialism adding that such teaching is not prevalent in Catholic or mainline Protestant denominations like Episcopalianism or Presbyterianism and is most commonly adhered to in an evangelical and fundamental churches, end quote. Well, for analysis of the doctrine and its impact on believers, CNN reached out to Darren Slade. He's the president and CEO of the Global Center for Religious Research, a non-religiously affiliated academic society and publishing house. Slade, whose website states certain religious contexts have also been responsible for a number of traumatic experience for people around the globe, said that the, um, the rapture anxiety is a real thing and a chronic problem. This is a new area of study, but in general, our research has revealed that religious trauma leads to an increase of anxiety, depression, paranoia, and even some OCD-like behaviors. I need to say this uh, prayer of salvation so many times. I need to confess my sins so often. He was also quoted as saying in the article, but on Slade's own website, he acknowledges that the academic study of religious trauma remains in its infancy when compared to other studies in mental health. Sadly, this means that there is no actual empirical data to support what we have seen and experienced in the tens of thousands, he goes on to say in a statement, that religious trauma exists and is chronic problem within many religions. So he's broadened it out beyond just the belief in the rapture, which is an eschatological perspective on how um, events prior to the return of christ will unfold some believe in the rapture some post-millennialists some are amillennialists so there are lots of different perspectives but what the article is getting at is if you're a religious person if you grew up in the context in a religious home certain kinds of religious homes then you are being traumatized by religion and where do you go with that moving forward (sighs) Well, the idea is you just eliminate the threat. Now, the word uh, rapture is used in this um, uh, this article, and it's a reference to 1 Thessalonians 4.17. That's often used, uh, cited as a proof text by rapture proponents. Um, they point to verses such as Titus 2.13, where the Apostle Paul describes the blessed hope of Christians everywhere as the appearing of the glory of the great god and savior Jesus Christ. Now whether or not you believe in a traumatic rapture, there is a return of Christ and there is trauma for those who are unbelievers. Now interesting to me is the fact that these adult former believers uh do not uh, embrace the truth of scripture any longer and yet they're traumatized by that particular thing as if it were true. the article goes on, while certainty, uh, certainly a topic of rigorous debate among theologians and other Christian thinkers, can the rapture, which essentially teaches that Jesus will remove Christians from the world prior to what will be the most uh, strenuous period in human history, actually be a source of trauma? Keep in mind, the rapture isn't embraced by all of Christendom. Christian author Todd Hampson was asked to weigh in. He says I think it's taken out of context or taught to young kids without the full context of what Jesus promised. What our hope is as believers, it can be a little scary. He said suggestions such as CNN's statement that the rapture teachings didn't emerge until the 1800s are flat out false. Pointing to early Christian documents showing all Christians are awaiting what they believe was the imminent return of the Lord. In addition to the passages cited by CNN, Hampton pointed to Jesus promised to receive his disciples to himself upon his return in the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. And while the rapture works of fiction, like Left Behind series, have brought the doctrine into the cultural mainstream, he says even fictional accounts of Bible prophecy have done way more good than harm because they force people to go back to study the scriptures. What do they actually say about these events? Well, God says what, uh, what he means and means what he says, Hampton goes on to say. If you come to Scripture with a belief that is inspired by God and he puts it together, then every word is intentional. Well, the question that CNN raises is whether or not this kind of communication, this kind of language or belief should be permitted moving forward. And it raises interesting questions about the challenge of uh, discussion or thought of the return of Christ, whether you are post, pre, ah, uh, millennial. Or if you uh, believe in a rapture and people will not have to endure the hardship that the scripture describes, uh, it's rather interesting that CNN decided to take it up as a form of communication that is traumatizing. And in our culture today, trauma is to be eliminated at all costs, unless, of course, that trauma is being imposed by certain acceptable practices like climate hysteria, that kind of hysteria and trauma that's okay or abortion the thought of not being able to terminate the lives of your own children that's traumatic and that um that uh is uh, is a form of of trauma uh that has to be eliminated by allowing the death of a child in any event i found it rather interesting that cnn decided to take the matter up and i will follow with interest to see whether or not their suggestion is uh that this kind of theology that Discussions of the return of Christ should simply not be permitted, particularly among young people who might be traumatized and those who um, become ex-followers of Jesus who suggest that they are struggling with trauma over end times teaching. Rather interesting. Well, I think we're out of time. Is that right? Yeah. Chris says we're out of time. Uh, Tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Dennis Prager. His latest book in the series, the Rational Bible series. Uh, is going to focus on Deuteronomy. The book won't be released until next week, but we'll talk with him about this latest edition in that series. So I hope you'll join us. In the meantime, I want to thank Chris Williams for engineering, James Blend for producing, and thank
1: you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook.